we have a lot more China expertise in the United States now than we had Soviet expertise in 1947, right? Do we have more China expertise in the United States than we had Soviet expertise in 1971 or 1983? Probably not, right? Because we haven't made the same generational investments in that expertise that we did during the Cold War. And, and I also worry, um, you know, not being a Sinologist myself, that some of the expertise we have either isn't in the areas where we would want it to be because the Chinese have created really good disincentives to, you know, aspiring academics studying particular aspects of Chinese politics and society. The Cold War. Why care? Well, Hal Brands, in his most recent book, Twilight Struggle, makes the best case I've read that studying this era can shed important perspective into present day challenges. Hal put some serious work into this book. Every page seems to be chalk with archival gems. Emily Jin, co-hosting with me, a researcher at CNAS, and I both consider ourselves, I don't know, third standard deviation Cold War nerds, but there was so much nuance in the history that Hal unearthed. I constantly was finding myself writing in the marginalia, oh, that makes me think about this differently, or wow, this has like some interesting implications for what's going on in 2022. Um, so really, really excited to get into this one. Hal, welcome to China Talk. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the conversation with both of you. So applied history, what is it and why isn't it more of a thing? So the idea of applied history is basically just a fancy way of saying that you study history not for its own sake, even though that that's important, but for what it can teach you about how to handle the problems of today and tomorrow. And, and this is actually the oldest possible use of history there is. There's literally nothing new about it. If you go back and read Thucydides, he doesn't use the term applied history, but he says that his history of the Peloponnesian War is meant to serve as a guide to statecraft and subsequent eras. And in fact, I would say that this is why most people read history. It's, it's really uh, mostly professional historians who think that history should be studied for its own sake. I think, you know, most normal uh, members of the reading public are, are interested in history because it provides some sort of insight on the challenges and opportunities that we face today. And so I think applied history is very much a thing. And if you if you talk to you know presidents or secretaries of state or whoever the case may be, they're constantly making historical references. They're doing applied history, whether implicitly or explicitly. The challenge, I think, is that within the historical profession, there has long been a concern that doing history with an eye to shaping policy risks diluting or compromising the scholarly objectivity on which good history is supposed to depend. And I think that that's a fair point. Uh, and there are good examples of people who have allowed the quest for influence or whatever the case may be to distort their historical work. But I think there are ways of, of balancing that challenge. And in fact, I, I would say that it's, it's hard for me to justify the doing of history if you're not trying to make a point that's relevant today. Why the Cold War as the point that we should be spending our, you know, marginal 10 hours a week of reading time uh, to diving into to understand contemporary questions? Well, part of it is that we all know something about the Cold War and we all probably have an image of the Cold War in our heads. And, you know, the Cold War occurred within the living uh, memory of a lot of U.S. policymakers right now. And so I guarantee Joe Biden has some understanding of the Cold War and that understanding of the Cold War probably plays some role in his policy decisions on issues from Afghanistan to Ukraine. But my hunch is that most of us don't have a particularly systematic understanding of the Cold War, because why would why would you if you hadn't you know spent a bunch of years of your life 
studying this thing. And so the idea was to do a deeper dive into the history of the Cold War so that when we inevitably draw on the history of the Cold War and thinking about Russia and China today, we're doing so on the basis of an accurate reading of that history rather than a stylized or an impressionist, an impressionistic version of that history. And so that that's thing one. And I guess thing two would be that one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that the Cold War actually isn't that exceptional. And so there are aspects of the Cold War that are exceptional. It's the only great power rivalry, uh, you know, to date, really, that, that played out in the shadow of, of nuclear weapons, uh, to give you one example. But then it's part of this much longer phenomenon of protracted great power competition, really going back to the beginning of recorded history. And so it ought to be able to teach us something interesting about that larger phenomenon at a time when it's coming back to life in the form of the U.S. relationships with China and Russia today. Thinking about the structure of the book, Hal, how did you think about length and choosing to do it um, topically as opposed to chronologically? Or, um, you know, another way you could have written this book is presumably doing it by characters. Um, why, why did you go theme by theme? I, I went I went theme by theme for a couple of reasons. One was I wanted to make it relatively concise. And so I, I was worried that if I wrote, you know, a six or 700 page history of the Cold War, that a lot of the insights that it might be able to produce for people who are thinking about this from a policy perspective would just get lost in the length of the narrative. And I also wanted a structure that would lend itself to really sharp analytical takeaways. And so doing it thematically rather than chrono chronologically was helpful in, in that respect. But the other reason was that I was trying to think of a way of, of doing this that would really speak to the present. And so I, I went back at the outset of the project and tried to think of okay, what are the competitive challenges that the United States faced during the Cold War, right? What are the competitive challenges that the United States faces vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China today? And then looking particularly at the overlap between those two lists and saying, okay, let, let's study these dimensions of the Cold War because those are going to be pieces that are maximally relevant for our understanding of the present. And in fact, there, there is a pretty good overlap when you look at competitive challenges. And so this is not to say that you know, the task of competing with China economically is the same thing as the task of competing with the Soviet Union economically or technologically. That, that clearly wasn't the case. And I'm happy to talk about all the differences between the, the past and the present, which is something I sort of stipulate to on like page three of the book, because it's such an obvious point. But just at, at a very broad level, we did have to do a bunch of things in waging the Cold War that are relevant today. So shaping a long-term strategy uh, managing an unwieldy coalition, thinking about the balance between competition and cooperation. All, all of those things have clearer analogs in the present. So uh, you've already kind of alluded to this, how um, the Cold War is extremely useful in thinking about today. So perhaps we could like level set on what systems competition is. Um, the Cold War wasn't just a security dilemma. It was a lot more fundamental uh, because there was limited overlap in the Soviet Union and the United States uh, Venn diagrams, if you will, for the global order. Um, so do you believe the overlap uh, for just the future of global order is also very limited for United States and China today? I think it is fairly limited. I, I don't know that it's quite as limited as it was during the Cold War, because the, the Soviet Union, if you took the ideology seriously, which I think a lot of Soviet leaders did, there was really no overlap at, at the end because for for sort of the ideological ideological vision of Marxism and Leninism to be fulfilled, the capitalist world was eventually going to cease 
to exist. And so it doesn't get much more zero sum than that. I, I don't think it's quite that stark today, but if, if you look at the combination of geopolitical and ideological goals that say China is pursuing, I think it's become increasingly clear in recent years, although there's still some debate over this, that there just is a lot of conflict between the way that China defines its interest in the world and the way the United States defines its interest in the world. That's clear if you look at the Western Pacific, where I think that what China is going for is a sphere of influence from which the United States is largely excluded. And that has been a scenario the United States has been trying to avoid for about 130 years now. Or if you look at China's effort to, to really become the preeminent global power and to reshape the global system in ways that would seem very unfamiliar and unwelcome to Americans to today. And so there, there's more overlap in the sense that you know, China's obviously much more deeply integrated in the global economy uh, than the Soviet Union ever was. But, but I do think that the lines are going to become increasingly sharply drawn as time passes because the clash between these two visions will become more pronounced. Hmm. So when the lines become, as you say, more sharply drawn, can we still try to integrate cooperative moments along an otherwise competitive trajectory? So you said in your book that long-term competition is often unsatisfying, indecisive by nature. Um, does the United States actually have the muscle memory to integrate cooperation with a mostly competitive approach when it comes to China? So even during the Cold War, there was a lot of cooperation that happened. And so there were you know, summit meetings between every U.S. president and his Cold War counterpart, sometimes multiple times. There were um, ongoing negotiations on a variety of issues for most of the Cold War. There were a variety of agreements on arms control, nuclear nonproliferation, crisis management mechanisms. And in fact, a lot of our understanding of how you address tensions between rival powers today comes from the Cold War. It's a legacy of the, the Cold War. And, and in fact, uh, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated on some things that would seem quite relevant today. So they cooperated to help eradicate smallpox during the late uh, 1960s and, and 1970s, for instance. And so I think that, that is, that's always been a function of, or a feature, I guess I should say, of the U.S. approach to competition. I think we're having to learn how to rebalance these things today. And so we're coming out of a period where, particularly if you're looking at China, the search for cooperation was arguably the dominant element of U.S. policy for a quarter century. There were elements of competition, to be sure. But the, the idea was that you would try cooperation first. You would try to bring China into the international economy, ask it to become more influential on issues like dealing with the North Korean nuclear program. And, and now we've shifted pretty hard in the direction of competition. So I think it's just going to take a little bit of time for us to figure out how to get that balance right, in part because it's not clear to what extent China actually wants to blend cooperation with competition. You know, there hasn't been a lot of um, forthcomingness from Beijing on um, global public health issues, for instance. The Chinese have said that they're not going to cooperate with us on climate until we lay off on a bunch of geopolitical issues. And so I, I think it, this is this is normal, but it's going to take a while to get to an equilibrium that permits both competition and cooperation. So on the ideological sort of dimensions of this, one of the really striking uh, lines you had of the sort of interaction between ideological competition and, and allies was that the simplest, you write that the simplest reason the, the free world survived is that the Kremlin left it no choice. And this is one of the really interesting sort of 
differences and tension points that I think um, that that I think you know Beijing really has a uh, a, a decision to make for itself because um, you know the level of commitment to global revolution uh, is is very different than it was for Mao in the in the 60s or or Stalin or Khrushchev and um, you know Putin has clearly basically fallen into the same trap right of of making it really obvious to everyone what the alternative is and how scary and awful uh how how scary and awful like that future is but i think there's still um uh, a very interesting uh a, a very interesting window for for china to potentially not uh, go down the path of making them uh of, of sort of like self-demonizing um to the planet i'm curious how if you could sort of meditate a little bit on uh how the soviet union uh ended up playing what what initially everyone thought in the 40s and early 50s was a winning hand in the third world where sort of revolution uh you know there there was a line Henry Cabot Lodge said like America can win wars but can we win revolutions like are the people ever going to be uh sort of aligned with what the US is um, are, are ever going to want to buy what the US is selling uh in these in these swing countries but ultimately that that balance really changed yeah, and it has to do with a few different factors. And and so one was that the trend in the third world or what would come to be known as the third world was toward greater ideological radicalism for, I would say, at least the first 30 years after World War II. This was the time when, when decolonization was really hitting its peak, really kind of from the, the late 1940s through the mid-1970s, which is when the Portuguese... Uh, empire uh, finally falls apart in, in Africa. And you had just a profusion of new political and ideological movements in the third world, m many of which took inspiration in one way or another from communist or socialist ideologies. And so it was clearly a case where the United States was fighting on the defensive in the third world for, I would say, the first 30 or 35 years of the Cold War. The, the, other th the other thing that I think is important to understand is that um, a lot of these ideologies were more attractive in principle than they proved to be in practice. And so the, the more that people in the third world got to know socialist economics or got to know Soviet influence, the less they liked it. And so this is one of the reasons why the tide eventually turns. And so by the late, let's say, 1970s, uh, socialist economics have been tried in a bunch of third world countries, and they've mostly produced disasters. You could look at Castro's Cuba, for instance, by this point, and there couldn't be a whole lot of illusions left about what an adherence to uh, Marxist-Leninist principles would actually produce economically. And this was at the same time, by the way, that developing countries that had embraced more of a capitalist approach to development, even if it was one where the state had a significant roles, I'm thinking in, in Singapore, for instance, or in Taiwan or in other places, they were starting to experience their economic takeoff. And so the contrast became increasingly pronounced over time. The other thing was that the Soviets allowed themselves to fall into the trap that the United States had earlier fallen in, into during the 1960s. And so by the end of the 1970s, the Soviets, in, in kind of a fit of ideological exuberance, had expanded in a bunch of kind of obscure places. I mean, uh, Angola, uh, Ethiopia, and the Horn of Africa, a variety of places of this nature, Afghanistan. And, and in all of these places, once they got there, they found that either their proxies or the Soviets themselves provoked a lot of blowback by their very presence and their very heavy handedness. And so by the late 70s, you see what is one of the decisive trends in the Cold War 
taking root, which is the emergence of anti-communist national liberation movements as opposed to, you know, anti-capitalist national liberation movements. And that's a trend that the United States is able to capitalize on quite well during the 1980s. Yeah, I love you. Have You have a, a quote from Gorbachev being like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with these Marxists in East Africa? Like, I just want to wash my hands of them. But, um, you know, once you start, once you once you sort of start crossing the river, it gets a little hard to uh, uh, to turn around. That's that's exactly right. And and the so I mean, the Soviets, they had the combination of sort of power and ideological fervor by the late 1970s that put them in a position of expanding more or less everywhere they could, not realizing that a lot of these positions would be sources of weakness rather than strength. Well, let's stay on the sort of ideological fervor and self-confidence, because there's a flip side to that story, which you tell in the U.S. context. And and your argument is that, like, in fact, America's, you know, belief in itself uh, and its ideals or whatever uh, was it was a key, uh, you know, was was really key to it um, pulling through in the end. How do you balance, like, thinking that um, uh, your vision for the world makes sense while not doing the Dean Rusk 1964 thing and saying that, you know, Vietnam should be held at all costs um, when clearly that was actually not the uh, the correct uh decision in that case. Yeah, we struggled with it because in some ways our, our greatest strength was also our worst weakness. And so it's it's hard to imagine a country with less self-confidence and, and less of a belief that it could fundamentally change the trajectory of humanity for the better, undertaking something as audacious as the Marshall Plan and the reconstruction of Europe and the democratization of Japan and West Germany and the melding of all of this into a thriving free world community that, that really did change the history of mankind in a fundamental way. At the same time, it was precisely that kind of enthusiasm that led the United States to do things like the Alliance for Progress in Latin America during the 1960s, which basically produced more instability than stability uh, because the United States was just dealing with, with far less favorable terrain there. And of course, as, as you mentioned, it was that same uh, sense of faith, really, that led the United States to think that it could not simply uh, check communist advances in Southeast Asia, but perhaps push South Vietnam in the direction of becoming a functioning liberal society, despite the fact that it, that would have been extremely difficult to do under any circumstances. And so I think it's really uh, a question of balance, and it's a question of, of judgment more than anything else. And that may be an uh, unsatisfying answer, but the, where the United States struggled was when it, it sought to apply solutions that had worked well in one context, typically in, in Europe or in uh, the more advanced parts of East Asia, and then try economically advanced parts of East Asia and tried to apply them in post-colonial settings where doing so was just inherently going to be a lot harder. You know how I read that part of your book, uh, I think the day after Biden's State of the Union, and I was just thinking, you know, Biden's saying this stuff about how we're the best country and we can do anything. And I'm sitting here like, oh, I, I really hope so. You know, to what extent did folks buy this, like, throughout the entirety of the Cold War? And, and you know, how, how did that sort of, uh, you know, sine wave uh, uh, flow in and out over time? I mean, I don't think they bought it any more than they buy it today. I mean, there, there was never sort of an uncritical belief that the United States could do everything and that its influence was entirely benevolent and, and benign. I mean, it's 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 quite often um, the opposite. And so the United States went through periods during the Cold War of 
intense self-doubt. Uh, and even times when the country was sort of tearing itself apart over things that the United States had done overseas. I mean, there's a great statistic that I think I cite in the, in the book where in 1969 or 1970, there were 600 bombings a year in the United States. And, and some of these were related to the blowback over the Vietnam War throughout much of the 1970s. I mean, there are big debates in the United States over whether we should have NATO anymore, whether we should still have alliance commitments around the, the globe. And so we go through these cycles of uh, self-confidence and then a lack of self-confidence. And, and this is normal. And it, it typically corresponds to, you know, when threats are running high and we're feeling good about ourselves, we embrace a very expansive conception of what we think we can achieve in the world. And then when something goes wrong, like the Vietnam War, we decide that, that we are really unable to accomplish anything of, of note. And it typically takes some sort of advance by the bad guys to, to shake us out of that. And so, so that, that's a normal part of American history. We see that cycle repeatedly during the Cold War. So just to push that a little bit further, I, we've been talking about it's difficult to frame the competition and have that just consistently apply throughout a whole period. How, and there's obvious downsides to ideological unity, um, like in the process of fusing, I think you said fusing geopolitics with values or ideology. Well, it's powerful holding a nation together, yes, but it's also obviously possibly going to lead to bad policies. So is there a way, like how would you design an approach that actually leaves room for both unity and also the clear-headedness that could detect bad policies either before or af after? You probably can't. I mean, I, this is, it's, it's like if you want a political consensus strong enough to sustain American participation in a long-term competition, like you have to tap into that ideological fervor that is very deeply rooted in the American psyche. And this is what Harry Truman understood. It's what Ronald Reagan understood. It's, it's what all of the policymakers who really spoke to Americans best about the Cold War and what it represented understood. And they weren't entirely wrong about that. I think they were, were right that what was ultimately at stake in the Cold War was a contest between two fundamentally different visions about how people and societies should be organized. But, you know, it's like any pep talk. It's easy to uh, take it a little bit too far or, or it's hard to, to downshift into a lower gear at a particular time. And, and so I think the, the way that I try to frame this is that any political consensus that was strong enough to inspire the sort of investments that the United States was going to need to win the Cold War was also going to be strong enough that people like Joe McCarthy could uh, abuse it or strong enough to lend itself to red baiting uh, and all of the negative political aspects of the Cold War or strong enough to obscure some of the differences between vital interests in places like Europe and East Asia and secondary interests uh, along the global periphery. And, and so I, I think that this is more in the nature of uh, a dilemma, right? And, and so dilemmas typically tend to be insoluble. There, there's no easy answer to it. And I think that's probably the case with American foreign policy as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that was a, a theme that really came out through a lot of your chapters is that like there are flip sides to everything and getting one thing perfect means you're going to get another thing completely wrong and and trying to sort of understand that from a from a military economic foreign policy societal like bureaucratic sense is 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 critical when you're trying to setting up a structure that you're going to want to sustain and be viable you know 10 20 30 years from now 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can you can see this in pretty much every dimension of the the Cold War. And so if you look at it with respect to nuclear issues, for instance, I mean, there there is a, a, an unavoidable trade off between strategic stability. So a situation where neither side feels like it can go first and strategic advantage, which is what you need if you're trying to practice extended nuclear deterrence. And I assume we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but th these dilemmas are just inherent to the conduct of statecraft. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's go there for a second. We've been, we've been in the sky for a while. Uh, and I want to go back to the media thing. So, um, the, the arc of nuclear policy through the 50s, 60s and 70s, um, that you gave in a very sort of elegant manner over 15 pages was really interesting and refreshing to me. Just seeing how the technology changed, the relationship changed, the military balance of power changed, and how that kind of fed back into the politics. Let's let's walk brief, briefly through sort of how Truman, Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, and then Nixon started to, um, I guess Ford in there too, uh, started to figure out how they should manage and, 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 and use nuclear power to America's best advantage. So maybe the way I'd put it is that um, every... Cold War president understood that deterring Soviet attack, uh, not just on the United States, but on its network of allies was perhaps the fundamental strategic challenge. But what it took to deter, what it was perceived required to deter evolved a lot over time. And so if you start back in the late 1940s, the United States had basically no ability to mount a conventional defense of Western Europe, but we thought it didn't particularly matter because the Soviets wouldn't risk war and because we had this nuclear monopoly. And so we would win any long war in the end. It, it starts to change because the Soviets get nuclear weapons. The Korean War happens. We start to, to rethink how aggressive the communist world might become. And so we start shifting in the direction of a more robust conventional defense where the idea is you got to at least be able to slow the Soviets down in a meaningful way or the escalation to the use of nuclear weapons won't be a credible threat. And, and we go through a variety of different approaches to military strategy during the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, all trying to, to come up with various answers to this question. And all of them featured some mix of conventional power and nuclear power, but the mix varied a lot over time, under Eisenhower, the idea was that basically as soon as the war started, you would very brutally and very aggressively use nuclear weapons. You'd go to the top of that escalation ladder right away. Uh, under Kennedy and after, it's more of a flexible response strategy where you're going to try to at least fight conventionally for a while and perhaps then go to limited nuclear options before you kind of blow up the world. And all of this was in response to this, this basic challenge. No cities. No, right. And, and so you get all sorts of different approaches to nuclear doctrine from no cities to yes cities to we're going to do selective strikes to we're going to do indiscriminate strikes. But the, ba the basic problem becomes really clear by about the end of the 1960s, because up until the early 60s, the United States had had clear nuclear escalation dominance to the point where we might have been able to conduct what, what strategists would call a splendid first strike, basically wipe out the entire Soviet nuclear force in our first strike so they can't hit the United States in, in response. Now, you, you can imagine that this would be quite a gamble, right? And so American presidents wouldn't be particularly excited about trying 
some of this, but we did actually consider it in the Berlin crisis in, in 1961, for instance. But by the end of the 60s, that era is over. The Soviets are getting close to nuclear parity with the United States. And so you're into a situation where any use of nuclear weapons threatens to trigger a war in which the United States itself will be devastated. And if that's the case, then how can you credibly threaten to use nuclear weapons first in a war? And if you can't threaten to use nuclear weapons first in a war, then your conventional weakness on the central front starts to become much more of a problem. And, and so really through the 70s and 80s, I would say that American strategy is, is highly focused on trying to solve this problem. And, and we eventually get close to solving it through a mix of really, really accurate nuclear weapons that can hold Soviet command and control and nuclear forces at risk. And so, uh, you know, even in a nuclear conflict, we might be able to limit some of the damage to the United States by going after the other guy's forces and then much improved conventional forces, particularly precision guided munitions, stealth aircraft and things that, that revel that changed the, the balance on the central front in a revolutionary way. But it took about 40 years to get to that point. And so, you know, when we think that deterrence was easy or automatic during the Cold War, that just wasn't the case. How another interesting wrinkle um, that you sort of came to light was the bureaucratic evolution. You know, in the 1940s, like they had no idea what they were doing. And it seemed like there was a real sort of flowering of of uh, bureaucratic initiatives and, and sort of reformulating. Uh, what did, what structure did they land on and what were the strengths and weaknesses relative to the other um, options uh, at the time? And then how did that evolve, evolve through the president's? Well, there really was no national security state at the, as we currently know it at the time that the Cold War began. There had obviously been a lot of bureaucratic innovation during World War II. That's when the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for instance, become a very important uh, body. But when you look back at kind of 1945-1946 period, it really wasn't clear what structures would survive World War II or whether we would go back to sort of a much smaller foreign policy apparatus. And, and what we eventually land on is the framework that's created by the National Security Act of 1947, which creates the National Security Council, it creates the CIA, it, it creates uh, what was first known as the National Military Establishment and then the Department of Defense. And it, it basically gives us the building blocks of the foreign policy apparatus that we have today. And, and it was meant to do a couple of things. And the, the first was to provide some centralization of authority in foreign affairs. That There was, a, I think, a realization that um, the American government really had, had never been optimized in peacetime before for presidential control of foreign policy. And that was going to have to change because the Cold War was essentially an extended national emergency. And so you needed uh, greater executive authority in foreign affairs. You needed uh, a more robust bureaucratic machinery to allow the United States to do the diplomacy and the covert action and uh, the military stuff and everything else that went into competition. But at the same time, it was meant to do all this without fundamentally perverting the underlying constitutional framework. And, and so um, there's a reason, for instance, that the Secretary of Defense is supposed to be a civilian. And this is to ensure that even as we, we created sort of a more powerful standing military establishment in peacetime, we would maintain the principle of civilian control uh, over the military. Um, the National Security Council, for instance, is a mechanism for the president, an elected official, 
to maintain oversight of this vast bureaucracy, which you want to make sure remains responsive to the will of the voters. And, and you know, whether it does or not is, is a debate that we often have. And, and there were a variety of other checks that were built into the system or checks that evolved along the way. And so when the CIA is seen to get out of control during the 1950s and 1960s, the response of Congress during the 1970s is to create strengthened mechanisms for oversight, like the House and Senate uh, intelligence committees. And so what, what you see over the course of the Cold War is kind of a continual evolution of the national security state in response to shifting needs of the moment. So when uh, you know, the third world becomes a, a big challenge for the United States. We create USAID and we create the Peace Corps uh, and a lot of other uh, organizations that are focused on that particular challenge. But the evolution is also a, a way of sort of keeping in balance all of the imperatives of foreign policy in a democratic system. It's uh, it's interesting thinking about that in the contemporary context. You know, I guess I have a shorter, a, a relatively short memory, but it seems like there hasn't been a whole ton of bureaucratic innovation in response to, you know, the China challenge. I mean, you have you have in 2022, the CIA, the CIA director saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do a China initiative and hire some people who speak Mandarin. I get you. I guess like firma kind of counts. But it, it, the, this ball seems to have only just started to get rolling in the contemporary context. I think there's a, there's a few things going on here. And so one is that we are not starting from scratch this time around, right? So in, in the early Cold War, like we didn't have a CIA even, and so we had to build one, right? We didn't have a National Security Council, so we had to, to build one. And so now when we think about those particular areas of competition, the, the question isn't so much one of like creating something from scratch, it's, you know, more of the re rearranging the deck chairs of the Titanic approach where we're gonna need new directorates at the National Security Council to focus on technology and to give Asia greater weight relative to other parts of the world. It's it's reallocating resources within the CIA. And so so the degree of I don't mean to understate the degree of innovation that's needed, but it's less than it was in 1947. The, the yeah. second thing, uh, interestingly enough, is that some of the bureaucratic innovations during the Cold War were so successful that they went out of business. And, and so the, the obvious example here is the U.S. Information Agency, which, while never perfect, I think played a very important role in sort of getting out America's story and, and telling the truth about the communist world during the Cold War. It was typically rated very highly by uh, American diplomats as a tool of American influence. And then we win the Cold War and USIA goes away, right? It's abolished in, in 19. 99. And so that's an area where we've had to redevelop that type of bureaucratic capability. And that that's a case where I think we actually have been quite slow and we still don't entirely know what to do. You know, we have the Global Engagement Center. We have a variety of things that were created during the global war on terror era to, to win the war of ideas, none of which worked particularly well. And so I think when it comes to, you know, disinformation, propaganda, all the informational elements, of uh, new Cold Wars, where we're still a little bit behind the curve. And I think you could make that same argument with respect to a lot of aspects of economic statecraft, where we're still trying to figure out what authorities, right, what institutions are needed to compete effectively with China in particular. Oh, I'm glad you brought up the piece, the information agency. That was one of the great factoids uh, that I really enjoyed about your book. Um, I do wonder if the 
either the hesitancy in developing a like like similar agency right now is because of the other point you mentioned in your book, which is the moral sustainability of political warfare or a longer term competition. Like political warfare could undermine U.S. relationship with allies, um, even if they're effective at undermining strategic competitors. So, right, what are the dilemmas? Yeah, yeah, I would I'd draw a distinction between. Um, the sort of activities that USIA undertook and then some of the harder edge political warfare, right? So politi political warfare is kind of anything you do to divide your adversaries or destabilize them or, or otherwise kind of throw sand in the gears and make their lives harder. And, and USIA, USIA uh, programs absolutely did that, right? And so even if you had like a library in East Berlin that normal East Berliners could access. In some ways, that was a tool of political warfare because it gave people access to perspectives that they wouldn't otherwise have had, and it essentially helped to break the communist information monopoly. And so that that was considered to be subversive to the other side. But there were sort of much harder-edged versions of political warfare that the United States pursued during the Cold War. So, some of them worked really, really well. Uh, and so you know, supporting uh, anti-communist insurgencies in Afghanistan or in Nicaragua. These were some of the more successful policy initiatives in the 1980s, and they played a really important role in showing how weak uh, and overextended the Soviet empire had become. Other initiatives worked really, really poorly. Uh, and so there were a variety of cases in the late 40s and early 50s where the United States essentially worked sometimes with the British to parachute Albanian exiles or Ukrainian exiles or whatever it was back into uh, where they had come from with the idea that they would link up with anti-communist resistance forces. And, and pretty much all those people got killed or captured, and unfortunately, in part because uh, Kim Philby, the notorious British spy, had uh, access to a lot of this information, was passing it along to the Soviets. And, and if you're talking about, you know, kind of the, the question of do you try to incite upheaval? political upheaval, violent upheaval uh, in an enemy state or in an enemy empire. I mean, there are some obvious moral dilemmas that are associated with that. Uh, and so, you know, should you encourage Ukrainians to fight in a, a bloody insurgency against Russian occupation today, if that's going to result in a lot of Ukrainian deaths, and you know that you're not coming militarily to rescue them, that that's a fraught question. There, there were parallels in the 1950s. Should the United yeah. States have encouraged uh, Hungarians to, to rise up and revolt against the Soviet Union in 1956, knowing that there was no chance the United States was going to come to the rescue? And, and there were different opinions on, on this question within the Eisenhower administration, for instance. And, and so political warfare can be very valuable as a way of exposing your opponent's weaknesses or making them do really unattractive things, but it, but it certainly comes with moral costs and human costs as well. So, you know, picking your allies uh, and, and sort of the, the tolerance that you have for um, uh, malfeasance among your, uh, your sort of rotating cast of tin pot dictators that the U.S. had to uh, or decided that it had to um, uh, uh, link up with over the time over time what do you think was the what do you think are the sort of key contradictions in um uh in in that sort of thing because it's not it's not like in every case you know you had uh the origin of nato of you know europe begging to have nato uh be a thing that existed right 
I think the initial instinct of most American policymakers was to stay as far clear of the third world as they could precisely because of some of these dilemmas. And so the, the Truman administration initially tries to keep its commitments pretty limited outside of, of Europe and East Asia. But there was this problem, which is that you just couldn't kind of cleanly divide the world like that. And so if you wanted to rebuild Western Europe, you needed oil from the Middle East. If you wanted to rebuild Japan, you needed resources and markets in Southeast Asia and elsewhere on the Asian uh, uh, continent. And so if you were going to hold the places that really mattered to you, you also had to hold some places that might have mattered less. And the problem was that in, in a lot of those places, so if you're talking about Southeast Asia or the Middle East or, or Latin America, there were higher degrees of political instability than there had been in Europe in the late 1940s or Japan in the late 1940s. And so you often found yourself in a position where the alternative to some communist insurgency or some uh, Soviet-leaning movement wasn't a nice liberal Democrat like Konrad Adenauer. You know, it was the Somozas in Nicaragua, or, or it was some uh, equally distasteful dictator in Southeast Asia. And so this is this was a problem that people like Walter Lippmann had foreseen from the outset. And in his book, The Cold War, which was published back in 1947, Lippmann basically says the problem with containment is that while it might work well in Europe, it's, it's going to work a lot less well in places where uh, the moral merits are uh, more ambiguous and where the allies that you're working with are more unsavory. And, and I think that was right. I mean, I think it is a genuine, I'll put it this way. I don't think it's fair to simply condemn the United States for working with bad actors in uh, Iran or Guatemala or any other place. I mean, I think you have to recognize that there is a genuine policy dilemma here. Uh, and, and so the question is, is how well do you do in resolving the dilemmas? And, and that was a challenge that I think really haunted American policymakers from the 1950s onward. And so, you know, Dwight Eisenhower has this great comment where he says, I wish we could get people in these downtrodden countries to like us rather than hating us. And then two, two months later approves the coup in uh, Iran and, and starts covert action in, in Guatemala. Uh, you know, John F. Kennedy tries to kind of get around this problem by launching a bunch of big modernization theory infused initiatives like the Alliance for Progress that are meant to, uh, you know, give Latin America 20 years of progress and five years of time and create uh, prosperous liberal democracies, and it mostly backfires. And I, I would say it, it, it was a problem that never went away during the Cold War. Even during the 1980s, the Reagan administration, I think, was quite successful in promoting American influence and promoting American democracy. It also cooperated with some thoroughly thuggish characters in Latin America and, and Africa uh, and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think this this for me is the sort of central dilemma, is, right? As on the one hand, you get the um, uh, you get the you get the Vietnam War. Right. Of and that's sort of driven by this ideological fear and uh, sort of worry that that if we if we screw this up, the whole world's going to know that we're we're a paper tiger and, and, and sort of America doesn't stand for anything. And then you get these uh, these conversations that you bring to light uh, very well through this archival uh, work that you've done of. Um, the leaders basically saying, oh, you know, these are trade-offs that we can make and that we have to make because, you know, there's a bigger bad behind all of this. And we got to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can 
so that uh you know marxism marxist leninism doesn't take over the planet Jean Kirkpatrick had a saying in the early 80s, she said, there are degrees of evil in the world. And so the alternative to, you know, working with Efrain Rios-Mont in Guatemala might be something even, even worse than that. And, and there's a certain amount of, of truth in that, obviously. The, the challenge, of course, is that there is always a point at which means can corrupt ends. Right? And so if there's always a point at which the way in which you pursue a certain goal can undermine the worthiness of the goal itself. And so I think it's a fair question to ask whether the United States occasionally got itself in positions where its own conduct was so bad or it backed people whose conduct was so bad that it undermined the larger moral cause it was trying to support. I don't, I, I, on, on your degrees of evil scale, I'm not sure how much further Suharto can fall down. Right. Um, and there are and it's not just him. Like there were there were plenty of others who who um, uh, ended up just killing, you, you know, if, if you do this sort of like what if of if their sort of left leaning alternative had stayed in power, there would be less sort of death and awfulness um, to befall these uh, to befall these countries. So, you know, I, I, I grant you how that these were difficult decisions. But, um, you know, I, I do think in, in, in retrospect, there were certainly plenty of these battles which the U.S. could have um, uh, uh, could have just decided not to fight. Well, just one further wrinkle here, which is that it it's important that we not overstate how much control the United States had in some of these situations. And so my friend Ray Take, you know, I think has, has shown pretty conclusively that the United States had a non-trivial but perhaps non-decisive role in the 1953 coup in Iran. The United States was deeply involved in destabilizing Salvador Allende's government in Chile in the early 1970s, but as far as we can tell, was not deeply directly involved in the coup that actually overthrew him in September 1973, although we certainly supported it after the, the fact. And, and so in many cases, the, the choice wasn't like, should you go make people do these terrible things in the third world? or not, it was, you know, given the, the trend of events, should you support actors who are doing morally questionable things? Should you refrain entirely? Should, should you oppose them? And we were doing all of this in a situation where sometimes we had a lot of influence and sometimes the influence was more limited. How let's play a little game of peak Nader, um, what peak CIA and Nader CIA. I would say peak CIA is, is something that a lot of people would disagree with, which is actually a pretty good understanding of Soviet weaknesses over time. And so the, the rap on the CIA is that it totally missed the coming collapse of the Soviet Union and that it, it overestimated the strength of the Soviet economy. I think that's wrong. I think the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union uh, had weaknesses that were, that were quite accurately revealed in CIA reporting really from the 1960s onward. And I think that a lot of that reporting played an important role in the policies of people like Ronald Reagan. And so I would give the CIA a lot of, a lot of credit for that. You know, what was the CIA's low point during the cold war? Well, we, we just talked about, you know, some of the third world escapades that the CIA was involved in, and there were, you know, some goofy assassination plots, like we're going to get Castro with the exploding cigar or, or something, uh, like that. I mean, there were also the, the instances in which the CIA got in trouble in the early 1970s for sort of sticking its nose into the domestic affairs of the United States, which is a big 
no, no. And so I, I would kind of group a lot of these things together and say it was the places where the CIA either exceeded its mandate, typically, in fairness, at the direction of a president, or contravened important moral values. Let's stick with that peak moment. Um, you have a great chapter called Knowing Your Enemy. I'm actually going to do a podcast with a guy who wrote a book called Know Your Enemy, uh, uh, David Engerman, in a few weeks, uh, because I think the sort of story of America figuring out how to study the Soviet Union is a important one to be told, uh, particularly in 2022, um, when, you know, the current sort of market for jobs of China analysts, as Emily and I can attest to, is like shockingly thin. And it breaks my heart uh, when I have to, uh, you know, when, 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 when listeners to China Talk reach out to me for career advice, and I feel like Jay-Z in, uh, in uh, Run This Town, where I'm just thinking, man, it's a pity half of y'all won't make it because there aren't, there, the supply, supply exceeds demand, salaries are low, this is not a liquid market, and even though it's growing, it's growing at like 5 or 10% a year, not um, at, the, at the pace that it seemed like in the 40s and 50s, uh, the U.S. really uh, spun up a, a, a pretty remarkable effort to, to sort of bone up on uh, all things all things, uh, all things Soviet. So Hal, what, um, uh, what, what are some of the, some of the interesting takeaways and lessons you had looking into, uh, how America tried to grok the Soviet Union? In some ways, I think we're a little bit better off today than we were at the beginning of the cold war. I think it was Richard Helms who later wrote in the beginning, we knew nothing. Um, you know, we, we, we had a few dozen Soviet analysts in the United States. One reason that you know, George Kennan was a brilliant guy, but one reason why he seemed so brilliant was that nobody else knew anything about the Soviet Union. Like you couldn't <laughs> travel there. It was difficult to get basic information about the government and the economy. And so he, you know, he stood out, he was a big fish in a very small pond. I think actually we're in better shape today. I mean, as you guys can attest, we have a lot more China expertise in the United States now than we had Soviet expertise in 1947, right? Do we have more China expertise in the United States than we had Soviet expertise in 1971 or 1983? Probably not, right? Because we haven't made the same generational investments in that expertise that we did during the Cold War. And, and I also worry, um, you know, not being a Sinologist myself, that some of the expertise we have either isn't in the areas where we would want it to be because the Chinese have created really good disincentives to, you know, aspiring academics studying particular aspects of Chinese politics and society, or maybe, and some of it is a wasting asset because it's getting harder and harder for people to go to China to do field work and, and to otherwise, you know, do sort of the lifeblood of, of academic uh, or intellectual expertise. But I, I think what the Cold War does teach us is that you can overcome this. It just takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of uh, energy. And so what we did during the Cold War is we basically created an entirely new academic field of Sovietology. And this, is, of course, is what David Ingerman talks about so nicely in the book that uh, you, you mentioned. And it was a case where you had academic institutions, uh, philanthropic foundations, and government all come together to create the money and the brain power you needed to really study a very hard target from an intelligence perspective. And, and so this is really when it becomes common for academics to go between academia and government or people to spend time at Rand or Brookings and then 
serve as consultants for the executive branch or whatever the case may be. And over time, I think the strength of that arrangement was one, we created a very deep pool of Soviet expertise. We didn't always have all the expertise we needed. And I'm not, I'm not claiming that the record was perfect uh, in any event, but we also created a nice uh, ecosystem where real debate could occur. And this was one of the great differences between the US and the Soviet approaches to an intelligence. I mean, the Soviet Union was clearly better than us at human intelligence, for instance. They were terrible at analysis because there was no incentive to engage in honest debate or honest criticism within the Soviet government. It was different in, in the United States. We had um, sort of a, uh, a, a, um, a decentralized approach to intelligence in a way that would pit different intelligence institutions against each other. You had outside experts who could argue with the government when they thought the government was getting things wrong. And, and overall, if not in every circumstance, I think that improved our hit rate over the course of the Cold War. Hey, Rockefeller Foundation, you guys got $50 million laying around? If you want to fund the next, uh, the next generation of scholars, uh, Hal, you alluded to this being really expensive. It's actually not that expensive to like fund a fund a uh, uh, you know fund a few dozen uh, uh, you know tenured tenured faculty positions and um, uh, you know give folks grants to do language training and whatnot. Um, it just seems to me one of these big, just like a really big return on investment thing. Because as you alluded to, Hal, what has been incentivized in academia, like the topics to study have not been thinking about, you know, Chinese foreign policy, thinking about elite Chinese politics. Uh, you know, some people, I guess, are like thinking about PLA stuff, but it's, it's, it's a very small um, percentage of the, of the folks who've been, been much more focused in, 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 uh, in, in sort of following the positive sides of, of, of post-reform uh, and opening China and thinking about trade and, and investment and, and, and whatnot. And, and the fact that, um, you know, there hasn't been much room in academia for, for folks doing Pekingology and, 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 and sort of writing about, uh, writing about the party qua the party is a real, uh, is a, is a real misstep. And I think that, uh, something that hopefully both U.S. government and philanthropic money starts to address in the near future. That's right. It's expensive for you and me. It's not expensive for the U.S. government or billionaires, right? And, and so there, yeah. there is money out there for this and it doesn't matter how much military power you have, how much economic power you have, if you can't direct it and use it effectively. And so one of the things we eventually figured out during the Cold War was that it cost more not to have this expertise than to have it. And it's interesting, by the time you get to the, the later parts of the Cold War, in administration after administration, you're, you're seeing sort of specific cases of this payoff, right? And so you look at Big Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor under Carter, a product of American Sovietology, Richard Pipes, right? A product of American Sovietology, Jack Matlock, same deal, who, who are running incredibly important parts of U.S. policy, drawing on this intellectual capital that the country had invested in developing. I actually have a 30,000 feet question that's also related to this. So one of my hypotheses of why there might be a lack of uh, super concentrated expertise that's going into this or analytical energy, uh, besides everything that you mentioned, which I agree with, which is uh, this idea of maybe the United States has forgotten how to deal with tragedy. So I, I'm specifically thinking about your 2019 book with Charles Edel, where you uh, talk about the uh, Athenians looking at tragedy as a vehicle for collective action. Um, how receptive is the American public 
and the American government, like how receptive are, are they about prolonged competition today and how does that influence the investment that goes into these expertise? So the, the way I'd put it is that I think our problem is we're pursuing Cold War objectives with post-Cold War levels of urgency and investment. And so we, we have you know, convinced ourselves that we face a problem in China and that we face a problem in Russia. But I don't know that we have been honest with ourselves about what level of investment and what level of energy and what level of sacrifice it's going to be is going to be necessary to deal with those problems effectively. Perhaps because, as you say, we, we've forgotten how bad the penalty is for getting these things wrong in a way that, say, the World War II generation would have found much more difficult to forget. Now, now maybe the Ukraine crisis is helping to remind us of this a little bit, and the Chinese seem determined to remind us uh, of it with some of the more outrageous things that they do. But I, I do think this is a real problem. And, and, and so it's one thing to say that you're doing great power competition. It's another thing to do it effectively. And I think we're a little bit between those two things at the moment. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I had the same instinct too, Hal, um, when the war broke out. And then you see the State of the Union and there's not. It, it, it's more along the lines of the Bush post 9-11, go, you know, buy a car and shop at your supermarket, not you all got to learn Chinese um, and, uh, and, and really think about how you can sort of serve freedom in your own, in, in your own special way. Uh, so I think this is really important. And uh, earlier this week, although it may not be earlier this week when this podcast airs, I wrote a piece with a friend, Mike Beckley, uh, where we basically argue that the proper analogy for today is the Korean War. And so through the late 1940s, the United States was basically like, hey, we're doing great power competition. We're doing containment and we've got the Marshall Plan and NATO and all these things. But our strategy was actually woefully incomplete. I mean, we had no ability to defend any of our new allies uh, in Europe. We hadn't brought Japan and Germany, West Germany back into the free world in any meaningful sense. And it's the Korean War that catalyzes a lot of this because it reminds people that the danger of global war is actually real. And so it strips away a lot of the prior constraints on U.S. policy. And so in about a six-month period, beginning in June 1950, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty becomes the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a real alliance with an integrated command structure. The U.S. decides to send troops permanently to Europe to anchor that alliance. We get agreement in principle to rearm West Germany uh, and bring it into the defense of the West. We neutralize the Taiwan Strait with U.S. naval forces, uh, and we do a bunch of other things that, that basically over time constitute the hard power backbone of containment. I, and I think that there's a similar opportunity today because the Ukraine war has been so shocking to people, not just in the United States, but even more so in, in Europe, for instance. And you've seen revolutionary changes in German foreign policy or Swedish foreign policy over the past few weeks. But it, But it really does come down to this question of, Will we seize the opportunity as the Truman administration did, or will we let it go by? We've done a lot of we talking on this, and I apologize for my non-American listeners here. Um, but I, I think in particular how, like, my sense is it's going to take Americans dying for something like that to happen in, the, in, in, in really changing the domestic context. And the equivalent of Europeans dying is happening today, even though, you know, Ukrainians are not in the EU or whatever. But like, I, I, you, you have that level of 
1950 Korea, all of a sudden, you know, they're pouring across the the Yalu River. Like, what are we going to do now? Uh, but I think that that hasn't quite landed in the American domestic political context in the way it, it clearly has in Europe. And in, in fairness, you know, the United States is not involved militarily in Ukraine in the way it was in South Korea. And so we haven't had our own yeah. Task Force Smith moment. We haven't had our own Chinese intervention moment in the way that we did in, in 1950. Economic determinism. Uh, it seemed like a lot of these, uh, the, the chapters, there came a point uh, in them where like America was just a lot richer and a lot more technologically advanced. And that kind of changed the game. And, you know, we can talk about Kissinger decide, deciding to, like, you know, handle the uh, the 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 six, you know, the the uh, Yom Kippur War in this, that or the other way. But at the end of the day, the sort of balance of the offering America had to the rest of the world and to the Soviet people just by being, you know, by having like a GDP per capita, which was like, you know, multiples ahead of what the Soviet system could offer its people seemed to be just like the trump card that a lot of these um, debates uh, ended up coming down to. How much of how much of that um, ended up, you know, how much of all of this sort of playing around the margin stuff matters uh, relative to just like making sure that you're the richer country than your adversary? Well, being rich, powerful and attractive is rarely a disadvantage uh, in geopolitics <laughs> as, as in life. And, and so you, you definitely I mean, it, it's a really important point that the United States had a much larger margin for error than the Soviet Union did because of all its uh, innate advantages. Um, now, that that said, the well, well, well they, they weren't innate, right? I mean, you know, it was uh, it, it's you got to the point of being the richest country in the world. I mean, yes, you had a bit of an edge, you know, starting at, you know, 1947 or whatever, but the gap increased dramatically over time. Well, I mean, yes, yes and no, right? I mean, so the United, in 1945, the United States had half of global production because the rest of the world had been destroyed in, in World War II. And so sure. the story of the first 25 years of the Cold War is everybody else catching up with the United States. But for the most part, that's a good thing because a lot of the countries catching up with us were Japan and West Germany and allies, right? And so that actually strengthens us uh, in, in the Cold War. You know, and, and so I think you, you can make the argument that so long as the Western world held together, it was going to win in the end because the power imbalance was so severe. But it wasn't a given that the Western world would hold together. I mean, the, the Western world could have you know, fallen apart in the late 1940s if you had had economic collapse in Western Europe and a bunch of communist parties had come to power. It, it could have fallen apart. Uh, in the early 1950s, uh, had you not strengthened NATO and sort of fortified the, the hard power backbone uh, of the free world. There are a variety of times in the 1970s, for instance, where it looked like the Soviet Union was getting the, the advantage. And so, you know, no matter how rich and powerful and attractive you are, there are still going to come these critical junctures where it takes good, bold decision making or prudent decision making to get what you need. And so I, I think we can be comfortable with sort of both aspects of this interpretation. Hal, speaking of critical junctures, uh, what are your favorite hypotheticals that you stumbled on uh, throughout, throughout all this reading? That, that's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the, I think one of the most interesting counterfactuals out there is, it's not actually mine. I think Fred Logeval at, at Harvard has probably thought the most about this is, what if Kennedy is not killed in 19... 63 and, and do you get a Vietnam war that looks 
the way that it does. And, and he, he argues that the answer is no, that Kennedy would have withdrawn from Vietnam as things got increasingly grim in 1964-1965 because he was more comfortable in his own skin and he would have been able to, to take the hit. I, I don't know whether that is true or not. I'm, I'm a little bit more dubious of, of that. But nonetheless, I mean, that, that was a critical, critical turning point at, at which kind of almost a freak uh, occurrence, Kennedy's assassination, potentially makes a huge difference. Um, you know, you, you can think of other ones as well. It was not predetermined, for instance, that Gorbachev would ultimately come out on top in the, the succession struggle that follows the end of the Brezhnev era, when, you know, these old Soviet leaders finally finish dying in the mid-1980s and you get a transition to a younger cohort. And so that that's certainly another critical one. Not be not because Gorbachev was the Gorbachev we remember from the outside. He he was not, but because he was ideologically flexible enough over time to realize that his early policies weren't working and shift dramatically in some directions that ultimately proved fatal to the the Soviet Union. And so th those are two of them. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are others that are equally consequential. You know, you could ask a similar question about the post-Stalin succession struggle. And, and so yeah, what, Beria, what if, um, you know, Beria manages to, to win that? And what if it is actually true that he planned to pursue a settlement of the German question in the mid-1950s? I mean, you might have had a fundamentally different Cold War. And, and so that would be a third one, I guess I would add to the list. Emily, do you have a favorite? Hmm. It might be the Kennedy one. What about you, Jordan? Do you ha did you have one in your mind? So mine was uh, Sino-Soviet split. Mm -hmm. If that like actually really turns into a war, um, you have this you have this wrinkle that I've seen in a few other books of like the Soviet Union in 1969, like some guy walking over to the American embassy, being like, "Hey, if we like nuke the crap out of China right now, what would you think about it?" Um, which is just a uh, you know just to give you a sense of how real that was and how fed up the and how fed up and scared the soviet union was of of where um uh, of where mao was heading in the late in the late 60s the funny thing was we actually asked the soviets the same thing in 1964 and so uh right right before the first chinese <laughs> nuclear test uh i think it was mac bundy went to go see uh i guess it was dobrina the soviet ambassador and basically said hey would you be interested uh notwithstanding this whole communist solidarity thing and doing a joint military assault on China's nuclear installations. And the Soviets say, ah, you know, pass. Uh, but then five years <laughs> later, they were asking us basically the same question. And, um, uh, and Kissinger was like, ah, we, we got something else up our sleeve, uh, which, was a, which was a pretty crazy, uh, crazy twist to all of this, of course. It, but of course, it was, in some ways, it was that question that was asked, I think, by the second or third secretary in the Soviet embassy in D.C. that catalyzes some of the discussions that ultimately lead to the opening, to the U.S. opening to, to China. I think that it, until you had that, uh, the clashes in 1969, and, and, and we realized how worried the Soviets were, it had not quite dawned on Kissinger, maybe in a way that it had dawned on Nixon, how much opportunity there was here. Hal, in your time roaming around, roaming around the crates, like who rose and fell in status in your mind, um, you know, executed really well, did stuff super poorly? I, I think anybody who works on the Cold War probably has a complicated relationship with George Kennan. And, and that's certainly <laughs> true for me. I mean, you, you cannot read his early stuff on the Cold War 
without being just blown away at how closely his analysis in say the, the X article 1947 predicts the actual end of the cold war and the dynamics that produce it. successful containment brings into the open, the cracks in the Soviet system. And then when you get a change of leadership, a change of generation in the Soviet leadership, uh, the whole edifice comes crashing down. And that's basically what happened, albeit on a different timeline than Kennan, uh, Kennan pointed out. And then he manages to get like everything else wrong over the course of the Cold <laughs> War, right? He's against NATO. Uh, he's against the formation of NATO uh, in 1949. He becomes a bitter critic of U.S. policy writ large, really, from the 1950s onward. He, he backs these crazy disengagement schemes from Europe that would basically have turned Europe over to the Soviet Union. I mean, that wasn't how Kid Kennan intended it, of course, but I think that would have been the effect. And by the 1970s, he's kind of calling for the United States to adopt a quasi-isolationist foreign policy because he's so horrified at all of the excesses of Cold War statecraft. And, and so Kennan sort of goes up and down in your estimation when you work on this period because you become more impressed by the things that he gets right, but it reminds you that, that even really, really smart people get some important things wrong as well. Were there particular eras or people or bureaucracies that you had thought had like really good writing and really poor writing? Because there were some like some CIA quotes where they're just like, oh, yeah, like we're going to do stuff like the walls of Jericho. I mean, there, there was some like very kind of off <laughs> lines in there. I guess it's hard to it's hard to generalize. Um, my, my sense is that any bureaucracy has a wide range of good and bad writing just as any bureaucracy has a wide range of you know good and bad intellects and good and bad uh analysis and it and it's probably the good stuff that sticks out to you a little bit more when you're on hour nine of rummaging through the archives as opposed to kind of the the typical boilerplate um you know i've heard it argued that the quality of staff work in the u.s government was higher in the 1940s and 50s than it is Today, this is a point that Phil Zellico makes, uh, for, for instance. I, I don't actually know that that is true. And in some ways, I think it might be the opposite because we were drawing on a much smaller segment of society and recruiting people for the federal government in the 1940s and 1950s than we are today. But but nonetheless, that's an argument that, that people have made. Yeah. And it's also the sort of thing where you read the really old stuff is like, we have more numbers now. And like numbers can be helpful when thinking about things um and you know you read the z you you read the old kennan stuff and like you know i guess there's a time and place for sort of like thinking big thoughts about like the nature of nations and whatnot but um when you go one level down just sort of the 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 amount of data that is out there for people to try to wrap their heads around is so much more abundant which allows you to kind of you know get the get the resolution a little higher when you're looking at these questions. The other thing to keep in mind is that when Kennan was writing in the late 1940s, there was so much more plasticity in U.S. policy than there is on a normal basis. I mean, a lot of these patterns that we've become accustomed to over the last 75 years, you know, dealing with an entrenched alliance in Western Europe didn't exist in 1947. And so there was more room for kind of big think first principles analysis back then than there was later, just in the same way that there's more room for big think first principles analysis in the first six months of a presidential administration than there is in the last three years of a presidential administration. 
While we're on the topic of intelligence analysis, I, I'm just curious because you, you talked about national intelligence estimates um, in your book, and you said it was quite interesting how, like, obviously people could contradict each other or just uh, have dissent opinions. Is there one that particularly jumped out to you? Maybe an iterative one where one disagree with the other or just presented totally different conclusions? Well, I think it, it often happens as part of a process rather than in a given um, national intelligence estimate, although there is there is one exception to that, which which maybe I'll mention. And, and so during the 1970s, there's a big ongoing fight in the CIA and elsewhere in the intelligence community over uh, issues like what is the purpose of the Soviet nuclear buildup? Is, is the purpose just to ensure that mutual assured destruction applies or is the purpose to give the Soviets a war fighting advantage that would give them coercive leverage that would allow them to blackmail the United States. And I think the CIA underestimates the aggressiveness of the buildup and the aggressiveness of the intent of the buildup early on in the late 60s and early 1970s, but then comes to what I would consider to be ultimately a more accurate position by the mid 1970s. You see similar things, by the way, when it comes to um, uh, the the burden of defense on the Soviet uh, economy, where the CIA actually issues a public correction, which also turned out to be wrong, but what was less wrong than its earlier position had been in the mid 1970s. Now, there's one very famous instance of debate within a particular national intelligence system, which is the the Team B episode uh, in the mid 1970s, where as part of this debate over Soviet strategic forces and Soviet strategic objectives, the CIA under uh, George H.W. Bush agrees to bring in a bunch of mostly outside people to kind of scrub the intel and debate their own analysts on these issues. Now, now it turns out to be a little bit of a disaster uh, because uh, certain of the estimates get leaked and Bush is very upset about it. And there are ongoing debates about what uh, Team B got right and, and got wrong. But I would say looking at looking at the issue, it was actually a productive episode. It caused the CIA to change some of its underlying assumptions about the Soviet Union, it caused it to change parts of its methodology for making assessments about this and other issues. And, and so if you sort of wrap it into this broader question of how do you make sure you have a vibrant ecosystem of debate on intelligence issues, I, th I think it fits with a larger, relatively constructive trend. Um, speaking of HW, one of the chapters that I really liked was the one on the conclusion of the Cold War and sort of how how Reagan and 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 H.W. Bush in the in the closing years of the conflict really like killed with kindness, I think was my was my big takeaway. What what um, what went on in that and the, uh, you know, 84 through 92. So U.S. policy during the 80s and early 90s was a really interesting mix of coercion and conciliation. And so under both Bush uh, and then Reagan before him, there was a very concerted effort to develop big, powerful advantages uh, and to exploit Soviet weaknesses. And, and so the Reagan doctrine in the third world, the, the 1980s uh, military buildup, um, a, a lot of the political warfare initiatives are meant to put the Soviets in a very tough position. And then when they start to give in the late 1980s and early 90s, both Reagan and Bush really extract all the concessions that they can. The INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty signed in 87, was one of the most asymmetric arms control agreements of all time. The Soviets have to get rid of like four times as many warheads 
uh, as we do. Uh, and the terms are skewed to the United States' favor in other respects uh, as well. Bush really won't accept anything less than satisfaction on German unification in 1990 and insists that it happen within NATO. And, and so all of Germany will be a member of NATO, which was not the Soviets' preferred position at, at the outset. And one of the reasons they were able to get this is because Soviet power was collapsing and because they were they were playing pretty ruthlessly. But, but they were also going out of their way to making sure that they did not humiliate a, a weakened superpower and, and to give Gorbachev the sense that he could strengthen his own prestige, he could strengthen his own position through a partnership with the West. And so Reagan uses a lot of pageantry at summits and things like that to send Gorbachev the message that if you change Soviet foreign policy in ways that we deem constructive, you will be welcomed back into the world as a legitimate member of the international uh, community. Bush goes out of his way to portray Gorbachev as a partner in the diplomacy surrounding German unification in 1990 for exactly the same reason. And over time, uh, Gorbachev comes to see that his best alternative lies in giving the West a lot of what it wants because it's giving him some of what he needs as well, prestige, economic resources, and other things. And so it's ultimately a pretty ruthless policy. I mean, we get everything we can out of Gorbachev while he's still in power. But one of the reasons that it's acceptable to Gorbachev is that we treat him with a lot of kindness as well. Yeah. I mean, thinking about that and the lessons is the, the war in Ukraine, right? As hard as it is, like Putin's going to, unless, unless he gets toppled, which, you know, maybe that's a 10% chance, like he's going to be, he's going to be the one that's going to end this war. And thinking about sort of the lessons from that moment of uh, figuring out how to give folks off ramps is a uh, is a is a tricky thing to think about, um, especially, you know, when you see images you do uh, you, you when you see the images you see on on TV, but is, is I think one that's important when understanding how conflicts end. And it's it's particularly difficult because you've got to create enough pain that Putin wants the off ramp first, but then offer the off ramp once he believes that it is desirable to take it. And, th and that yeah. balancing act is particularly tough. Hal, let's close with some, some book recommendations. One book I'm reading right now is called Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by uh, Stephen Platt. It's just a masterful account of the Taiping Rebellion uh, in China in the 1850s and 1860s, which was a much bigger global deal than anybody remembers. And uh, the reason it's relevant today is it actually has some long-lasting implications for what you might think of as the Chinese worldview. Uh, and so it, it's useful in sort of understanding the historical background to Chinese decision-making. Uh, another, another book that I was just leafing through this morning, and it's typically sitting on my shelf somewhere around here, uh, is an oldie but a goodie. It's uh, John Gaddis's Strategies of Containment, uh, which was first written in the early 1980s, and I think was the first book to try to really take a systematic account to studying American strategy during the Cold War. And every time I, I'm biased, he was my dissertation advisor, but every time I read it, I'm uh, still impressed by the number and the quality of the insights in there. Uh, for, for a follow-up, Hal, uh, God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence, if you want to get more into uh, uh, into why someone thought they were Jesus's child um, <laughs> and sort of what was going on, what was going on in his head. Uh, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully written as well. Uh, sort of exploration of... Uh, was it Hong Xiaoquan? I forget his name. Uh, of, of Hong Xiaoquan's like uh, just mindset throughout the whole uh, throughout the whole process. Emily, what are you reading? 
well, besides Twilight Struggle, um, I guess I was also reviewing uh, one of the John Lewis Gaddis books, The Cold War, A New History, uh, right before, uh, kind of concurrently, actually, as I read your book. So that was just a great uh, week of Cold War reading. Um, it, but it's appropriate that you're mentioning John Gaddis's books because, you know, I was a John Gaddis PhD student and writing this book uh, made me feel like a PhD student again, which is fun, but mostly not fun. And and so uh, it's it's appropriate that we are invoking my thesis advisor at the moment. Yeah, Hal. I mean, there's always the there's always the tension with history uh, professors where at some point they start to get lazy and stop reading uh, primary stuff. But you haven't hit that point yet, so uh, stay strong, Hal. I'm, yeah, I'm sure I'll hit it soon, but but not yet, as you say. Thanks so much for being a part of Chinatown. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, 